We're uh, still Mark 14. We're going to go to verse 12. But do this for me also. Go ahead and go to Exodus 12 also. And just slide your finger in Exodus 12. Just because uh, you know, I want us to, to visit that in the context of, of where we are. So Mark 14, verse 12. And then Exodus 12. Mark those two places. I want to share this with you also. I was originally going to try to cover a, a, larger, a larger chunk of, of uh, this account. And I tell you, just, just struggled and struggled, and, and finally, finally God helped me whittle it down. So we're, we're just doing verse 12 through 16. Okay, just 12 through 16. And the title of the message is simply preparing for Passover. Right? Preparing for Passover. And, and really two main things that we're going to look at, and that's simply the purpose of the preparations. Okay, the purpose of the preparations. And then the plan for the preparations. So we have the purpose of the preparations and then the plan for the preparations. And this idea of preparing for Passover. So Mark 14 12 through 16. Let's go ahead and look at that. Mark 14, 12 says, On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? Verse 13, he said, And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city. A man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. Wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, the teacher says, where's my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he himself will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. Prepare for us there. Verse 16, the disciples went out, came to the city, found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And prepared the Passover. You see, that this meal that, that Jesus eats on the eve of his death... It, we understand it was a meal that was designed by God. Right? We understand it was designed by God, and it was designed by God to exalt the Son. And it's a meal that does several things. It preaches the gospel. It displays the grace of God. It signifies the creation of a new spiritual covenant between God and repentant sinners. And so, obviously, there was a lot of preparation that went into it. But we know that the preparations go back, way, way back. And verse 12 says, on the first day of unleavened bread, Passover lamb was being sacrificed. Disciples just said, all right, teacher, where do you want us to, to go so we can observe Passover with you? Where do you want us to do that? Now, as we've seen, this was the big event of the Jewish year. All right, we understand that this, this was a huge, a huge event. And if you remember, it was a time when all the lodging in the city was free. And, and so Jerusalem was packed, and all the outlying towns were packed. And there were just throngs of people, I mean hundreds of thousands of people everywhere. It was a big, big time. But it was, it was, it was significant because it was designed to commemorate what? The night God passed over passed over Israel when the death angel was coming through. You know, remember the, the last plague, the tenth plague, and, and killing the firstborn in Egypt. But we also know it was called the Feast of Unleavened Bread because there was no yeast or leavened bread that was, not only it couldn't be used, 
but you couldn't even keep it during in the house. You couldn't have yeast or leaven in your house during this whole period of time. It just it was it was a big no no, so you couldn't do that. But but there was a lot of preparation that went into it. Okay, there there was a significant amount of setup, and and that's why I want us to go to to Exodus twelve because Exodus twelve just shows us in about eleven verses the setup for preparing for the Passover. Okay, so Exodus 12, these first 11 verses, gives us some specifics. So first of all, let's, let's just look at that. All right, Exodus 12, verse 1 through 11, says, Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year for you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month they are each one to take a lamb for themselves according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. Now if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbors nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them, according to what each man should eat. You are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. And they shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs, along with its entrails. Verse 10, And you shall not leave any of it over until morning, but whatever is left of it until morning you shall burn with fire. Now you shall eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. A lot of details. Just, just in the setup of preparing for this really important feast. First of all, we see they were to choose a lamb, and it was supposed to be killed on the evening of the Passover. Okay, so they're supposed to choose a lamb. They're supposed to take the blood of the lamb, as we read, and put it on the doorpost and the lintel of their homes. They're to take the lamb and roast it over fire and eat it with bitter herbs and unleavened bread. And then, and then they're supposed to eat this meal like they were dressed for a journey. Okay, they, they wouldn't be just sitting around in their, you know, eating dinner clothes. They'd be dressed, he says, you, you, you need your cloak on, your sandals on, and your, and your traveling stick in your hand. And he says, and you're not just kind of taking your time with the meal. I want you to eat it in haste because there's some great symbology. So they are to eat it as though they were in a hurry. So there was a very specific setup to getting ready for this Passover meal. Lord said, do it this way, and this way, and this way, and this way. But then we also know from, from history and, and Scripture that there were, there were specific steps that went along with how the meal progressed. In fact, over in Luke 22, uh, you know, it gives us the, the first step, but we know that they always first drank a cup of red wine. Okay, it was the first cup. So they drank a cup of red wine. Then there was a ceremonial washing of hands, and that symbolized the need for spiritual and moral cleansing. So they drank a cup of red wine, washed hands, because there was spiritual and moral cleansing. Then they ate bitter herbs. Why bitter herbs? Because the bitter herbs symbolized their bondage 
in Egypt. Their bondage. Then they drank the second cup. Now, when they were drinking the second cup, the head of the household would explain the meaning of the Passover. Well, everyone probably knew the meaning, right? But still, just, just to bring to mind, I mean, the same re- reason we, we talk every week about you know, the Lord's Supper, this dude remembered to me, just to bring it to mind, to keep it to the forefront of mind. You know, I guarantee everyone in the household, except maybe, you know, little baby, uh, what's-his-face, knew what was going on. They knew what the Passover was about because it had been, goodness, they'd been hearing about it in the synagogue all week, but it had been part of their lives for forever. But still, because of the solemnity of the occasion, he explained the meaning of the Passover. Then they would sing the first two of the Hallel Psalms, Psalm 113 and 114. So they'd have a, a time of singing. Next, the lamb would be brought out, and the head of the household would distribute pieces of the lamb with the unleavened bread. And we know that the unleavened bread symbolized what? Symbolized haste. Okay, symbolized haste. There was no time to allow the dough to rise before the journey would begin. Then they drank the third cup. And finally, they'd conclude by singing the rest of the Hallel Psalms. Okay, 115 through 118. Wouldn't you like to know how those go? I mean, I'm sure we could find, you know, again, Orthodox Jews who do that. We could probably listen and learn those. Maybe we'll have someone come in sometime and teach us the Hallel Psalms. It'd be interesting, I think. But but they would close. They would close with this this great time of singing. And so there, there was this important setup, and there were these specific steps. But we also understand the sacrifice was important. Okay, we know Exodus 12, 3-8 says it, it involved a lamb. Now this is really cool, and I want you to see the progression. And It's just little things. You know me, I, I love grammar. But verse 3 says, for Israel, says, Israel, choose a lamb. Verse 3. You get to verse 4, and then it's called the lamb. Okay, then it's called the lamb. Because there it refers to a particular lamb that was chosen for the meal. But then you get to verse 5. It's a lamb, the lamb. Now it's your lamb. It's a lamb. It's the lamb. Now it's your lamb. Why? Because it makes things personal. It's not just a, a lamb that was sitting around. No, I want you to choose a lamb. It's a lamb. Now it's take the lamb. And now it's your lamb because it's a personal event. It's a personal meal. It's a personal Symbol. And it says they were to take it on the 10th day of the month, so the 10th day of Nisan. And they were to keep it until the 14th day. So they wouldn't just take it and sacrifice it the same day. They, they keep the lamb around for a few days. Well, if you know anything about lambs, lambs are kind of cute. Yeah, I don't know, maybe you don't think lambs are cute. I think lambs are kind of cute. I heard a, a, a you know, great comedian, or just a funny comedian talk one time about you know, holding a lamb, a little baby lamb in his arms. He says, you know, I'm, I'm never going to have lamb chops again. I just can't do it. You know, it's just, it's just so soft and gentle. But, but think about it this way. You, you've got this lamb, and, and it's you know, a lamb, and then it was the lamb. Now it's your lamb, and it's your, you know, your lamb for these four days. And you know, your, your children... Have your lamb around, and, and you know they're developing an attachment. There, there's a bond, understanding that this is the lamb that's going to be sacrificed. But but there was this personal attachment that was developed because it was your lamb. 
Well, it was intentional. I mean, I mean God wanted them to see. He said, look, here, here's the high cost of sin. I, I want you to understand that salvation is intensely personal. Your, your Messiah is not going to be just a Messiah or just some guy walking along. He's going to be your Messiah. He's going to be a personal Messiah. This is a personal thing. The sacrifice is a personal thing. We're following these steps, and, and here's the lamb, and, and it's become personal for us. And we understand because Christ is not just a Savior, right? He's, he's not just a Savior. He's not one among many. He is what? He is the Savior. He is the Savior. And His saving work is accomplished in our lives on a personal level. On a personal level. He indwells us. He becomes our Savior. That's why the, this meal was personal. It was personal and it was stress. I mean, head of household would stress the personalness of the meal. So we understand that, but we also understand it was very, very symbolic. I mean, it was, it was rife with symbology. We see, first of all, there was perfection involved because it says the lamb was to be without blemish. Without blemish. What is that? That's a picture of, of perfection and purity. Well, the lamb speaks of our Lord Jesus because... He is also without blemish. He is the sinless Savior. 1 Peter 2.22 says, talking about Jesus, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So he was and is perfect. The Lamb represented the perfection of the Savior. But then there was protection that was symbolized because the lamb was to be slain and the blood applied what? To, to the doorpost of the house. The family was supposed to gather inside the house and eat the meal. And when the death angel passed through the land, those who were in their homes with blood on the doors would be what? They would be safe. They would be protected. They would be sheltered. And isn't that a great picture of Christ who, who is the only shelter, the only shield against the wrath of Almighty God? The only protection against the wrath of God is the blood of the Lamb. That's such a great, great portrait. It's the only thing that kept them safe. Romans 5, 9 says, Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. 1 Peter 1, 19 says, But we're redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So we see perfection. We see protection. We see purification. Why? Well, the lamb was to be roasted with fire, verse 8 of Exodus 12 says. It's a picture of judgment. It was to be roasted with fire. It says, don't boil it, don't eat it raw, don't do anything else to it. I only want you to roast it with fire. Why? Because it's going to remind Israel that the judgment of God was being poured out on a sinful Egypt. And the only thing that prevented Israel from being judged along with Egypt was the blood of the Lamb who died to save them, who had been judged in their place. And so there was a process of purification and this idea of judgment. And we know this symbolically and practically. Jesus was judged in the place of His redeemed ones, in the place of us, 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just 
for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Well, the, the lamb had to be eaten. I think I put partaken up there. See, it, it didn't do any good just to, just to select a lamb or just to kill it. The lamb had to be taken in. It had to be taken in. And the same is true with Christ. His death on the cross is meaningless. Paul said it's foolishness unless he is indwelling. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense. That's why Paul wrote, you know, the, the, the cross is, is, is foolishness to those who don't believe. Why? why? Why would you bother? What's the point? What's the purpose? The last thing we see is the shedding. Because here's the thing, you know, some people, some people think that the cross and especially the blood of Jesus are, are offensive things. Offensive to the point where, I mean, they don't like to talk about it or, or discuss it or, or even sing about it. I mean, most of what we've sung this morning would have offended some people. Because what are we singing about? We're singing about the cross and we're singing about the blood. But we understand that's essential to reconciliation with the Holy God. Ephesians 2.13 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And I love that term brought near. You've been brought near by the blood of Christ. Because it's not just, hey, you know, come over and kind of you know, stand by me. No, it's brought near, brought into intimate fellowship. You've been brought near. You've been brought into the fold. You've been brought into my family. You've been brought near by the shedding of the blood of Christ. Hebrews 9.22 According to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood, and without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. See, there was, there was purpose in preparing for the Passover. There was distinct purpose. And, and I'm sure, like with, with so many other things, you just have to figure there were some people who kind of went along with the motions. I mean, that's just the nature of people. I mean, I, I, just, I just have to think that, you know, there were families who, all right, well, okay, you know, it's, Passover week, we, well, we got okay. We got the feast tonight, so you guys get this done. You get that done. We'll we'll get you know Scruffy the lamb in here, and we'll you know we'll go through. We'll, we'll cover our steps. We'll cover our bases. Sing some songs. And I say that because because we know in watching the events of the week. People who were just kind of numb to Christ. I mean, people who were, were praising Him one day and then several days later say, no, no, crucify Him. People who, as we've said before, missed that Messiah was here and missed that the Lamb of God was in front of them and missed that 
they were putting him to death. So there was a distinct purpose in all the preparation. But then we also see from, from the, just the next four verses that there, there was a distinct plan in all the preparation. There was some distinct purpose, but there, there was a distinct plan. Verse 13 says, He sent two of his disciples, said to him, Go into the city. There's going to be a man, he's going to meet you, he's going to be carrying a pitcher of water. I want you to follow him. Wherever he goes, say to the owner of that house, The teacher says, Where's my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And the owner, he himself, will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. Prepare for us there. It says the disciples went out, came to the city, found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Well, well the first thing we see, we see the pair. Right? Which was a, which was a, that was a usual thing. That was a normal thing. That's, that's the way Jesus operated many times. We, we know lots of times when he sent people out in twos. Right? We understand that. It says Jesus sent two of his disciples. Now from, from Luke 22.8, we know the two disciples were Peter and John. Now, how many people are surprised that Peter was one of the ones who was sent out to go take care of things? Peter was a busy guy. I mean, he was, he was always at the forefront. He was always doing. So Peter and John. We also know, according to Jewish law, you know, if Peter and John were going to be the ones who, who got the lamb, um, only two men were allowed to accompany a lamb for sacrifice. So only two men could take the lamb to the temple and sacrifice it. So we got Peter and John, and they're going out. Now often, as we've said, we see Jesus sending people out in pairs. See him send them out in pairs. Why is that? Well, I mean, you get this idea of strength and support and security and even sharpening. I mean, if you're going out by yourself, it's a lot, man, it's a lot easier to stumble, isn't it? It's a lot easier to get discouraged. It's a lot easier to just give up. But if you've got someone else there kind of poking us, oh no, we're not quitting. We can't stop now. We're going to keep going. So it's the idea of, of support and sharpening. It's one of the reasons that, that you know, I think you know, they established, for churches to establish plurality of elders. Because, man, if, if, you are, if you are it, if you're, the, if you're the lone gun, if you're the head cheese or, or, or whatever it is you are, it's much tougher. I mean, if, if you can't really share the load with anyone, if, if no one's, you know, holding your feet to the fire, if no one's sharpening you, if no one's lifting you up and saying, oh, no, we got, we got to stick this out. Yes, I know they're, they're, they're people and, and, you know, people can be frustrating, but no, we're, we're, we're in this together. We're going to stick together. We're going to make this work. So it was a normal thing. It was a usual thing for Jesus to send more than one. But here's what was unusual was this picture, this whole picture thing. Not pitcher like I'm throwing a ball. It's just, you put water in it. Not everybody knows what a pitcher that you put water in is. You've got to explain things. But that was unusual. He says, look, you're going to enter the city. I'm going to let you, I want you to find a man who's carrying a pitcher of water. Well, why was that strange? Because culturally, everybody knows this, right? Just nod your head. We, we know. Men didn't carry pitchers of water. They didn't do it. 
They might have carried like a, you know, like a, a wineskin or something, but men would not walk around with jars or pitchers of water. It just didn't happen. I'm serious. It just didn't. You know, some of you look at me kind of funny sometimes when I say these things. It's like, do you make this stuff up? No. no it's just you go read it. Go study it. Men didn't. They didn't walk around carrying pitchers of water. When, you know, in your Sunday school pictures, have you ever seen pictures of men? You know, going to the well with a big old pitcher on their shoulder. No, it's always women with the pitchers of water. Sometimes you see, you know, they had the, the yoke with you know, the big jars on either side, and the women were walking along with that. So it would have been strange. Now, this is kind of cool because, remember, there are millions of people in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. So you see a guy carrying a pitcher of water, that's going to stand out. It's going to be pretty, at least easier to notice. I mean, if Jesus would have said, look, find a woman carrying a pitcher of water... Peter would have said, Jesus, really? A woman with a pitcher of water. Why don't you just go tell us to look for a camel or a donkey or, or, or someone wearing sandals? So that's why we got a man carrying a pitcher of water. So he would have stood out. I read one commentator said, and, and maybe it was some sort of prearranged, you know, clandestine thing. You know, Jesus, you know, he, he got together with his servant and said, okay, now on, this, you know, on Thursday, uh, you're going to be at this, on this street, and you're going to be carrying the red pitcher, and there's going to be guys that are going to find you. I don't, you know, that might be stretching a little bit. I, I think it was more of, yeah, Jesus knew who was going to be carrying a pitcher when and where. But it was interesting. It was kind of entertaining. Uh, you know, I, I personally think it just demonstrated his divine knowledge and the fact that, once again, God has a defined plan. God says, all right, Joe, you're going to be carrying a pitcher of water, and these guys are going to find you, and they're going to ask you a question, and you're going to lead them back to um, John Mark's dad's house. But, but often, and isn't this true, and here, just as much as anywhere else, man, God, God uses unusual or peculiar or out-of-the-ordinary people and things to accomplish what He desires. First Corinthians one twenty seven, you know. Some, sometimes I think this is my life verse. But it says, "God's chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God's chosen the weak things of the world to shame things which are strong." I heard a pastor preach one time on on the idea of of you know the fact that we're clay. He said, "Man, we're just all a bunch of cracked pots. We really are." I'm. I'm the, the chief among the cracked. So, you know, God chooses peculiar, foolish, strange, unusual people. And he even says, you know, I've, I've, I use the, the foolishness of preaching to proclaim the gospel. So I, I'm putting together some unusual people with this, with this you know, ridiculous method to accomplish what I want to accomplish. So we know God uses the unusual. Now, but don't we do this sometimes? Sometimes we, we see something, we come across something, or you know, maybe you feel like God's leading you to do something. And we think, and maybe I'm the only one who's ever thought this, but sometimes we think, all right, now God, you, you can't really mean that. That's not really what you mean. Probably what you mean is an insert X. 
No, you, you, you can't really, you, you don't want me to ch- completely change what I'm doing. That's not really what you mean. This is probably what you mean. I mean, that just, God, that sounds kind of foolish. Or God, you, 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 you really, you don't want me to be doing this. God, you, this is probably what you mean. I, you know, I think sometimes we, I think sometimes we try to help God out. When something seems unusual or foolish or peculiar or strange or counterculture or whatever else. You say, oh, God, really? That's, that's, that's not really what you mean. But no, he, he uses the unusual. So we got this usual pair going out and they're looking for something unusual. And they're looking for a place and they're going to find a place that we know turns out to be very useful. So we got the pair... She says, look, find, find this guy, pitcher of water, follow him. It doesn't even say they were supposed to introduce themselves to him. It just, it just said follow him. That would be kind of strange. He's going to lead you to a place. Now, now the owner, here's what, here's what a lot of people think, and I would tend to agree. A lot of people think the owner was, uh, was John Mark's father. Okay, so, so Mark's dad's house. Partially from some, some passages in Acts, and I think I put those up there, and partially from, from the fact that you know, he uses this word teacher. He says, I want you to tell him, you know, the teacher wants to know if his room is going to be ready. Well, it could have been a number of teachers, so there, there would have been more of an intimate connection. So again, a lot of scholars think it was, it was Mark's dad's house. Because we, we know later on they, they, you know, the disciples stayed there. But he, he would have had this large upper room, and it would have had, a, would have had a, you know, one of those low tables and reclining couches for eating. Right, so it, it, would have, it would have been designed to accommodate a lot of people. It would have been comfortable. And again, you know, from, from the text, he says, you know, make sure it's prepared. He, he probably would have had everything, maybe the bread and the sauces and ceremonial food. You know, he could have gone ahead and already had the lamb you know, taken care of and laid out. I don't know, I, I think maybe Peter and John got to go sacrifice the lamb, but that, that's just, I don't have anything to back that. But he, he would have had everything prepared. It would have been done. So that when they got to that house and got to the upper room, it would have been laid out. They wouldn't have had to do any work. We also know this. We know that Jesus could have told the disciples, go to this address on this street. Look for this color house. Look for this style of house. Look for you know, these plants growing in front you know, in this kind of jar in front of this house. He could have given them all kinds of details. Right? Because he's Jesus. He could have done that. I think part of the reason he didn't, because well, that's the way he works sometimes, but, but partially because he didn't want Judas to get wind of any specifics. Because if Judas, Judas would have been out of him, the interpretation is, if Judas would have gotten specifics about that, that would have been a pretty good place to ambush Jesus. Right? It wouldn't have been out in a big public area. Could have sent guards, could have captured him in the upper room. 
So I, I think some of that was to, to veil that information from Judas. Because he, he wanted this meal to be a special time, a personal time with he and his disciples. A special time with these men. And also, because Jesus never left teaching mode, never ever left teaching mode, he wanted to be able to teach them some, some valuable truths. And by proxy, he wanted to teach us some truths as well. So what did he do? He, he veiled his instructions. He didn't give them all the details. I'll say that again. He, he veiled his instructions, and they didn't have all the details. They didn't have all the information upon which to work. And oftentimes, and again, maybe I'm the only one, so I'll just make it personal. Oftentimes, I struggle with not having all the details. I like having all the details. I like having all the information. I like having all the pertinent things. I like having the dots connected. I like having all those things put together. I like plans. I've, I've said this before. I'm the kind of person, I, I like plan A, and then, but I like having a plan B and a C. And you know, I like to go down to Q, R, or S, or, or you know, maybe W sometimes. I, I like having plans. So this idea of, you know, your words a lamp to my feet and a light into my path that, that doesn't shine out really, really, really far. I like the kind of lamp that goes out, you know, two, three hundred feet. I don't, want the, I don't like the lamp that just gives me about four or five feet. I want to see more. But we know it doesn't always work that way. And so some people might struggle with veiled instructions. Some people might struggle with not having all the details or all the information, all the dots connected. And sometimes I think it hampers our usefulness. You know, if we're just sitting there waiting, oh no, there's got to be more information. God, I, I I need a little more to go on. I need a little more to work with. Can you give me something else to go on here? And Peter and John could have said that. Said, all right, Jesus, can you give us a little more than just a guy carrying a pitcher of water? Could you tell us what color his robe is going to be? Or what color his hair? Or, you know, is there more information? Is there any reason you're just not giving us more? But there was a specific plan. And I tell you, I, I praise God that, that He has purpose in all He does. Man, aren't, aren't you glad God's not arbitrary? I mean, aren't you glad He just doesn't say, okay, well, go do this. Go take a lamb and, and make sure it's this way and keep it for this many days and then follow these steps in this process and, and celebrate a feast this way just because I think it's going to be interesting for you. No, he has a purpose to everything. There was a purpose and there was symbology and there was, there was an underlying intent. So man, I, I'm, I'm glad that God is a God of purpose. I'm glad that God is a God of plans. And I'm glad he's a God of, of, God of plans that can't be thwarted. We, we, we can't change his plans. We can't get in the way of his plans. We can be less useful sometimes, and we can be more useful sometimes. But 
Praise God that he's, he's got a purpose. I don't know about you, but you know, sometimes you, just, you, you visit with people and they, and they have this view of God where he's just kind of doing random things. He's causing random storms or, or whatever it is. You know, God's a very definite God. He's a very distinct, very orderly, very purposeful God. And we should take comfort in that. I mean, shouldn't that comfort us and calm us and, and give us peace? And as we're going to continue to see over the next couple of weeks with, with this passage, praise God that in His purpose and plan, He decided to provide a lamb to spare us, to spare us from His wrath and from death, and to bring us what? To bring us near to Him. Praise God that He said, here's, here's the lamb that you need. Here's the sacrifice that you need. Here's what's going to protect you, and here's what's going to bring you to me. And praise God that so many of us sitting here Can, can make that claim. Amen. I mean, praise God that we say, yes, I, man, I'm, I'm covered, I'm protected, I'm indwelt. But if you're not, then, then praise God that He is a God who is in the business of bringing people to repentance and faith in Him. And He does that all the time. He does that and hopefully will do that with everyone here. There are these specific preparations For this symbolic and, and solemn and special event. And I, I think if nothing else, especially, I, I, I tell you guys, I, I think the next few weeks are, are, are just going to maybe solidify that much more the solemnity and, and uh, the importance of approaching the Lord's Supper in, in a proper way. I really do. I, something that, that Pastor Brandon, Pastor John, and I have talked about is, is just this, we have such a great opportunity to, to really dial in and focus on, on all the elements and, and practices and symbolism that are tied up in, in the Lord's Supper. And just, just seeing all these steps and all this preparation and all this planning that, that were the initial part and understanding that if it was a heart thing that, that, it, that they weren't sitting in their houses just going through the motions and saying, all right, Martha, bring me the herbs. Yosef, you know, bring me you know, the second cup, whatever it was. 
No, they were, they were solemn and they were serious and they were contemplative and, and they were hopefully humble and, and contrite and saying, yes, we, we remember because it's been passed down to us how the angel of death passed over us and that we were protected and are protected because of the shed blood of the Lamb. And that's who we are this morning. Praise God that we are protected and we are provided for. And we're to proclaim that mightily. Let's pray. Lord God, again, for who you are, and Lord, for your provision and your protection, and and God, yes, for your, your purposes and your plans, Father, may we always humbly praise you and thank you. Father, because you, you care enough to do those things for us. And it's not anything that we deserve, but, but God, because you are gracious. Lord, I ask that you, as always, help us this morning. Help us to be contrite and, and, and humble and, and examining and, Father, remembering and, yes, Lord, even celebrating as we think about what you have done. Lord, we love you. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.